This is the Made For More podcast. The health and wellness industry can be dogmatic and stagnant. We aim to explore what makes up the true essence of the human experience by discussing health, happiness, the human body, and what it truly means to be made for more. I'm your host, Jake Reynolds, along with co-host Lauren Sock and Mary Kathleen Toner. Welcome, everybody, to the Made for More podcast. I am Jake Reynolds. And I'm Mary Kathleen. And I'm Lauren Sock. Today, I'm thrilled for our guest, which is Culpa Numberthy. She is a licensed psychotherapist and certified EMDR therapist who works with men and women in her private practice in Atlanta. She provides counseling, trauma-focused therapy, EMDR. Yes, we are super excited about what we are going to talk about today because it's a topic that might be new for many of our listeners here on the Made for More podcast, which is trauma. And as I mentioned, Kolpana is a therapist that specializes in trauma. And for many of us, we probably think of trauma as being something very big in our lives that has created a big change. But Kolpana is going to explain it a little bit more specifically, what is trauma? How do we know if we get experienced trauma in our lives? And if we have, how can that affect us? But before we get into that, um, Kolpana, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, sure. So um, becoming a psychotherapist is a second career for me. So um, born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, and I spent the first 20 years of my career um, in marketing, um, got my MBA from Duke and started my career working in large global advertising agencies and marketing consulting firms in big cities. Um, and, um, did that for a very long time. And then at one point in my career, um, had my own marketing consulting business doing marketing consulting for small businesses and business writing. Um, also did a transition of uh, getting into career coaching and then ultimately probably 15 years ago um, uh, went back to school full-time to get a master's in professional counseling. So why did you transition from that into being a therapist and in particular like trauma therapy? Um, so the the transition was not like an overnight process. I actually started Thinking about becoming a therapist 12 years before I actually took the big leap of faith uh, to go back to school full time. Um, so there were a number of factors over the years that were driving me, but it uh, it primarily came down to um, wanting to have more freedom over my work schedule um, and um sort of my physical and emotional health had always been a priority for me. And while I'm grateful that I had the corporate marketing experience and the marketing consulting experience, um, the nature of that, of that career, you don't necessarily always have as, uh, as much flexibility over your schedule as I wanted. So that was one of the drivers. Um, and the other thing I was sort of at that midlife point where, uh, where you look back and you go, okay, I've done that really well. And yes, I'm, I'm very good at that, but something's missing that pull for greater meaning that often happens to us at midlife. So I was kind of feeling that. Um, 
as well as getting to a point of looking longer term and saying, hey, when I'm 50 years old, I don't want to be uh, writing marketing plans or uh, going after marketing business or trying to get a full-time marketing job. I wanted something that I knew I could do anywhere in the country and that I could set my own schedule and it would sustain me for the rest of my life. Um, so those were a number of the factors driving the, the, yeah. the change. So going from kind of the business world into um, more of a, a therapy role, how did you end up in, in trauma specifically? Because I know, I think I've heard you talk about this previously, which was uh, you, you desired to help people kind of more from if people were kind of stuck in their career and whatnot, like how they kind of break through those barriers. How did you actually ultimately end up doing more like trauma-based therapy? So like many people in the general public, when I entered graduate school, I had too narrow a definition of trauma. And so you know, when I look back at the application, the essay I wrote for graduate school, it, where you know, you're, you're describing the type of work you want to do, it doesn't even say trauma. Um, but what happened yeah. is in uh, my first semester, one of the classes you take is, you know, human development over the lifespan. And we were doing a model around developmental stages of adults. Um, and there was a whole class we did mm. on um, various issues and uh, problems and symptoms that adults who are survivors of trauma have. And I was looking at all of that and um, some light bulbs went off in terms of things in my own life, but also going, wow, all the, all the things that I said I wanted to help adult clients with, these these problems around self-confidence or, or um, dating issues or relationship issues or getting stuck for various reasons, yeah. those are all rooted in adverse childhood experiences, um, attachment issues early in life, as well as other types of things that we don't necessarily consider trauma. But they're also rooted in what we do traditionally consider trauma, the uh, physical threat to physical safety. So it was, it was the more yeah. I started. And once I had that class, then I just started. I loved it. I started taking every class I could around trauma. I started reading a lot of books that, um, that weren't even being assigned. And I just found like, wow, this is really interesting to me. And I can see how um, this is the root cause of a lot of anxiety and depression and insomnia and chronic pain and that sort of thing. So when we're talking about trauma, like, can we just define that real quick? Like, what is trauma? I think a lot of us have this idea that it's, it's maybe a large event, um, or, you know, in, in the, the, the physical aspect of uh, medicine, we think of an accident or something like that. Right. So when we're talking about trauma, what, what is it? How, how do we know we've experienced trauma in our life? Um, and, and if we have, how does that actually physically affect us? Okay. Um, so there's three questions in there. So if I forget yeah, one, just kidding, that, that's okay. That's yeah. fine. That's, that's all good because you know what? It's all related. It's all related. There you go. Okay. Yeah. So let's take the first one. What is trauma? So um, when we think about trauma, we often hear it described as two ways, big T trauma and little t trauma. And so the big T is referring to the big, like a capital T and the little T is the lowercase T. 
um, and in of it of itself, that designation causes people to minimize what is little t. But let's go broad. So big T is just what you said, Jake. It is experiences, whether it's a single incident or a series of chronic incidents or multiple incidents in the one side, where there was a threat to our physical safety. Okay, so that's the accidents, the war, that is the um, physical assault, that is the sexual assault. And the key is it either happened to you or you witnessed it. Okay. Um, and the other type of trauma, which is a lot of people have, and um, but they don't realize that that is what's pushing their present day uh, symptoms, is the lowercase trauma. And by that, those are things that are threats to our emotional survival. Okay. And from a brain perspective, the brain does not distinguish something that is a threat to our physical safety versus something that is a threat to our emotional safety because as human beings, we're wired for connection. So the infant, the child cannot survive without adult figures to protect it. And even as adults, you know, and, and people are experiencing this now in the pandemic, we need social connection that that in order to be to survive mentally and have well-being so the the types of things that fall under that lowercase small t trauma are insecure attachment or not getting enough of the good stuff growing up not enough attention affection words of affirmation um, growing up in a household where either because of a uh, uh, substance abuse addiction or a family member who was very depressed or a lot of tension or fighting, um, there's, there's, there's not enough um, stability in the home. So there can be that chronic stress. But it can also be things like sudden job loss or, or heartbreak in high school or college, a relationship breakup. Right now, you know, the entire country is going through this collective trauma, which would fall under a lower T, small T trauma, which is this collective trauma of an ambiguous loss. Meaning up until here, here we are, we're recording this in week 17. So four months ago, suddenly people had a vision for what their spring was going to be like, what their summer was going to be like. And now not only has it been a loss of those hopes and of dreams and what you planned, but there's this, um, those things can't come back. You know, the, the prom's not going to come back, the summer vacation, the graduation, um, and then this, this uncertainty. So the country is going through this small T trauma of grief around all the losses, um, so, so that's the, so the common denominator, whether it is a big T trauma or a small T trauma is a actual or perceived threat to our survival, our physical survival and our emotional survival. Right. So this, this is interesting because this kind of fits right along in, in, in parallel to when we talk about, you know, physiological pain, the PT realm, we kind of call it either macro trauma or micro trauma when yeah. we're talking about physiology. What's interesting, and I'm curious 
to see if this is the, the same way that you help your clients or some maybe some the same experiences that you have with your clients. When we deal with somebody who's had a macro trauma, maybe a, a, an injury in which they, they fell and they broke their leg or they, you know, stepped off a curb and rolled their ankle, that would be considered a macro trauma. It was one big incident that caused a, a, a large physiologic response from an inflammatory standpoint versus the individuals who have, you know, just a low grade amount of pain because of a dysfunctional movement or because of an old injury that is sort of more like a dripping faucet where uh, I guess the analogy I often use is, um, you know, one, one swift hit with a hammer versus a thousand tiny little hits with a hammer. And oftentimes we find the, the more difficult person to help is the individual who experiences long duration, low grade trauma. Would, would you kind of say that's similar in the way that Kind of maybe talk to me about some of those things. And are, are they similar or are they different? Um, in terms of um, a macro, okay, a macro trauma can still be multiple incidents. But I think the analogy that I would create in my language for what you're describing is in my practice, when I've got somebody who comes in, they say, I've been anxious most of my life, or I feel like I've had low-grade depression mm-hmm. about, oh, my, most of my life, or I think I've had insomnia, and I don't think I've ever had a deep night's sleep. That, yes, that could be triggered by a single incident, major T trauma, but often what I am finding it is that chronic stress. It is that adverse experience. And the adverse experience doesn't have to be a physical blow. It can be, um, let's say somebody relocated a lot as a child, okay? That experience of I bond with people. I kind of get comfortable in this community. I, I find, and then I have to move again. Even if even if those experiences each time we're moving, it's this kind of constant, constant stress or the constant stress of needing to be on guard in a household because there was a chronic sense of, I never know when this person's going to yell at me, or I don't know when my parents are going to be fighting. Um, So in the parallel to your your language from a physical therapy standpoint is single incident trauma versus um, complex PTSD, for example. So complex PTSD is they had early developmental trauma, so insecure attachment or um, emotional or physical abandonment for a really long time, combined with um, just different types of adverse or major trauma as an adult. Um, and to, to your, the part of your question was you you were saying like when we do physical therapy, sometimes we find it is a longer process to heal that sort of dripping water analogy. Um, from a, from a trauma perspective, I, I don't necessarily say that it always it takes longer to heal the single incident versus the complex PTSD uh, based on the nature of the kind of um, root cause work I do. So essentially, we're tr- your, your goal is to help people you know, get past their past and get unstuck, right? So they can move towards their goals, whatever that is. Um, so like when we talk about things that hold them back or makes it difficult for them to make changes, how do you help people to find their more, so to speak, 
um, so that they can move forward in a positive direction? You know, one of the things that holds people back from finding their more is along somewhere along the line, whether it was in childhood or later in life, because of relationship dynamics they were in, they don't really have a connection to their genuine self. Okay, like my, my business is called Genuine Connection for a reason, because at the core, the end of the day, whether trauma-focused work is we're helping people get connected to who they truly are, which is often buried under negative beliefs they have about themselves. Like, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I can't trust my judgment. If I say no, I will be abandoned, rejected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, different things that, that kind of yeah. the child made that meaning or the adolescent made that meaning because of just various upsetting experiences that happened either in the family or at school or culturally. So part of the work is, one, helping a client by doing the trauma-focused work to shift those automatic negative beliefs about themselves so that they can get clear on, is the way I'm operating who I authentically am? Or is it like, no, I, I like uh, developed these behaviors as a way of surviving and adapting in either the home environment or the school environment or the work, work environment. Um, so Part of what we're what you're looking at is remember how we talked about with trauma. There was a actual or perceived physical or emotional threat. So one of the one of the consequences then is the person present day may not even realize that their entire nervous system is always in that hyper vigilant mode, waiting to protect themselves from either the physical injury or the emotional injury of feeling the pain of being embarrassed or criticized or shamed or feeling less than in some way. Um, And so we all, I mean, our brain and body is really cool. Like when we have those experiences happen, especially in childhood and adolescence, we develop these coping behaviors to adapt and keep ourselves securely attached in that family or to keep ourselves physically safe. And so some of those behaviors, we, um, in the process of that, we abandon who we, who we are. So for example, let's say um, early in life, whatever, you shared you shared emotions with people. You made yourself vulnerable in some way. And the, the response you got either made you feel embarrassed or made you feel dismissed or minimized. And that was particularly painful if you were a child or an adolescent. Okay. So you may have said, I got to protect myself from ever feeling that. And so you develop this thing to keep yourself safe, but then Later on, as an adult, you may come into counseling and go, okay, one of the reasons I'm here is whenever I'm in a dating relationship or I'm in a, a, a you know, any kind of partnership relationship or marriage, my spouse says I'm not emotionally open. They want to know, okay, that's a common thing we hear. And, 
And so that's, that's the work, the work, the trauma work is to understand rather than feeling the client comes in and they feel like, you know, I'm broken, I'm damaged, there's something wrong with me that I can't share my feelings. And the, we want, we want them to understand, no, you're not broken. You're not damaged. Actually, your brain and body did a really smart thing for you. You developed this incredible competency to protect yourself from feeling that physical pain or that emotional pain. But you know what's happened? You've over-adapted. You've gone too far in using that. And I can see you guys running like you see the parallels in the physical therapy world. It's the same thing emotionally. Like it's just a different muscle. You guys are working with the physical muscle. I'm working with the emotional muscles. And say, let's change those emotional muscles so that when you're when you want to express yourself, and this is getting back to the more, we can't get to that more if through our life we've developed this, it's not okay for me to be authentically myself, or it's not okay for me to express that opinion, or it's not okay for me to disagree. You know, a lot of people come in and say, I'm conflict avoidant. Well, and where does that manifest? Tightening up of the body. Um, so... I know this is a long answer to your question, Lauren, of what people, but the, the part of it is these behaviors that we just develop as a way of protecting ourselves from perceived threat, they get in the way of us knowing who we authentically are, okay? And so often the loneliness that people feel, the emptiness that they feel, like people will come in and go, I don't know why I'm not happier. Like I've got this good job. I've got a healthy a relationship or marriage. I've got the 2.5 kids, you know, I, something's missing. Like, and, and that's a clue that some of it is what's missing is you've abandoned yourself somewhere along the way. And sometimes the client says, I don't even know who myself is. I had to cope by being a chameleon all the time. I don't, I don't even know, is this me or is this what I've adopted to fit in to life? So we then do the trauma-focused work to help them gain that clarity and to be able to say, I can set boundaries, I can say no, I can express my opinion, and it's no longer a threat, okay? Um, and the other thing that keeps people from that more is, you know, we live in a society that is telling us that we need to be being so super productive, okay? Like we are living, like busyness is this badge of honor and that success means doing more. Um, and for some people, like their more is not actually doing more. It is doing less. It is getting comfortable with, I am enough. I am doing enough. I don't have to over-function. I don't have to keep building and growing. Um, I don't need to have more likes. I don't need to have more followers. I don't need to have more, pre you know, more presence. And so the, what holds them back from that more is getting clear on what's really essential to me. What are the core things that I need? And then from there, they're more maybe either doing less or they're more maybe making a pivot. And it's, it's not a stepping back. It's a lateral move.
And when I mean that, I don't mean necessarily a career move, but just some other shift in their life. Okay, like the more is, wow, I'm going to start adding in a meditation practice or a yoga therapy or Pilates. That's their, their more. Um, uh, so those are, those are two, two things that hold people back from, from their more. And then the third thing is just true physical, biological things that, you know, you guys know if somebody is in chronic pain, has inflammation that sucks the life out of them. They don't have any energy or bandwidth to even think about their more. Or if they have hormone imbalance, if they have food sensitivities, if they have mold exposure, all of that creates inflammation in the body, creates pain, creates brain fog. And when you're under all of that, you know, you're just trying to get by day to day. This is a pretty good segue because I actually do want to touch on on chronic pain for a minute because, you know, we are in the United States, the, the second highest incidences of, of chronic pain, only second to France. Um, I didn't know that. That's me. I mean, it's we, we are, you know that. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty interesting, right? For, for a country that's so developed, right? Um, has every resource we could ever want, right? It's pretty interesting to think about. Yeah. And, but we're also the, the number one consumer behind all opioid medications worldwide. I mean, we consume 98% of all um, oxycodone produced. And so chronic pain is a massive, massive problem uh-huh. within our, our society right now. Um, and I think that this is something that we have to do better about understanding. And so we deal with this, oftentimes PTs and especially what you do, like we are kind of the, the people on the front lines for, for chronic pain because there's often a pretty poor physiologic understanding of what's going on. And I think that um, something that you kind of touched on is pain oftentimes for the individual who is experiencing, and I, I personally don't like to call it chronic pain because I feel like that kind of puts a label on somebody. Uh, I, I don't can't tell you the number of times I've had people tell me like, oh, I'm a chronic pain patient. I'm like, oh, man, you've like you have just become resigned to that because somebody along the way has told you that. So I, I personally tend to you know say that you have a persistent pain syndrome um, or you have a complex pain syndrome. Right. Where it kind of removes the person from from what the the, the actual pain that they're experiencing a little bit in the sense. But pain oftentimes for these people tends to be. A, a safety mechanism in which that is a place that's going to keep the organism at its at its lowest level safe. Pain is a, is a safety mechanism in a lot of instances um, in the way that we kind of view things in which it's really a nervous system that has does not understand how to deal with all of the inputs it's receiving. And now the brain is stuck in what we would call a centralized, a, a, a sensitive, a, uh, it's called a central sensitivity or a sensitive state in which the brain cannot process the stimuli it's receiving from its, its periphery. Um, and so the, the scrutinization of the inputs we receive, we don't know what to do with it. So pain just becomes the output. Uh, Louis Gifford in, in the late 90s, early 2000s kind of proposed this mature organism model, which takes into account all of these things you're talking about. Not only the physical stimuli we receive from our environment, but also the um, the emotional component, the, the psychosocial components, you know, all of those things. And so when 
as physical therapists, we try to influence, we use the, the physical body as a window in to help reorganize the brain so that we can be able to scrutinize this information a little bit more efficiently and be able to help process it, uh, our pain and, and make sense of it. However, that only goes so far. And so the majority of people that we see who have a persistent pain syndrome, they have to have a, a component of um, psychotherapy to actually help them make sense of, of what they're experiencing, to get validation of what they're experiencing, and to be able to process the, the things that they are um, uh, unable to process as efficiently. So talk, I guess, if you could, and sorry, that was just, I get so excited about this stuff because it's so interesting to me, but talk a little bit about um, you know, all of the things that experience the pain states that we um, undergo from an emotional standpoint, a past experience standpoint, and how you can help people actually um, actualize these things in terms of helping them reprocess and, and reorganize this information to make their nervous system, to dampen down the nervous system a little bit, if you would. Yeah. So, you know, when we think about um, trauma, whether it's a perceived physical threat or a perceived emotional threat, so we know that when we are under any type of threat, you know, our body tightens up, okay? And we go into that fight, flight, or freeze mode in order to engage resources, okay? And so um, if you think about chronic pain, yes, there is the or persistent pain, okay? Um, there could be an actual injury, all right? But then separate from the injury, there are all the emotions that the person associates with that injury. And, um, you know, Lauren, you and I have both talked about the book Back in Control, where he shows that um, even with clients who had a clear structural reason causing their pain, if he had them for six to eight weeks do a process of expressing the emotions that they weren't expressing, how that reduced, reduced the pain. So if, if in my practice, what I see all the time is, um, cause my intake also asks them about physical injury and pain and all. And, and most of my clients who have had, um, who score high on the ACEs uh, assessment of adverse childhood experiences and, or who have just chronic anxiety and depression, they've got a lot of, um, of pain conditions. And so if you want to think about what's happening, when we perceive the world as a threat, so even in the absence of a, of a physical injury, if we perceive that we can't trust other people, that person is going to emotionally hurt me in some way, what do we do? We're, we're tightening up. And so we've got people walking around that their steady state is in this fight, flight, or freeze mode, and so the entire body is tight. So one of the reasons I love EMDR therapy is because it's a comprehensive therapy, um, so often when I am, we are doing the memory reprocessing with EMDR, a client will go, oh my gosh, my hip's just released. And okay, 
and that's showing you the connection between that emotional pain and the way that got stored in the body by constricting around the hips. I mean, I've, I've even had primary care doctors who will refer a patient to me and say, we've done everything around this neck pain, this back pain, or this gastrointestinal issue, and we've cleared all that, and we can't figure out why the level of pain. And I've had clients, while, you know, while we've done the EMDR, at the end of the session go, you know what I realize now? It wasn't even about my neck. It wasn't even about my back. It was about that, but they don't, they're not aware of it because for most of us, unless we are doing a daily body scan and doing some of the kind of work you guys are doing and what yoga therapy does and meditation of really helping us on a daily basis, become aware of what's happening in our body. Um, we don't realize how constricted we are. Jake, to your point about opioids, it's interesting. I, I'm, um, I was just doing a training uh, recently, and they talked about opioid addiction relative to pain. Oh, and the, the, the instructor was saying that he believed that opioid addiction wasn't really about the physical pain. It was that we start with this cause of the physical pain, but then the body is constantly sending a signal to the brain that you are in danger, you are in danger. And so the, the reason the person gets addicted to the opioid is because the opioid helps relax that fight or flight thing so that they get out of, get out of the pain. And a lot of addiction, you know, we know when, whether it's opioid addiction or alcohol addiction or addiction to um, sugar, because that's, you know, that helps us, that where there is addiction, there is trauma, that rather than the, the, we don't cure addiction by abstinence. We cure addiction by getting really curious. Like what happened to you that you need to cope with that behavior? You know, and then like um, that, that addiction behavior is the secure attachment. It is the comfort. It is the thing, you know, I can always go to that and it is safe and it is comforting and it'll, it won't hurt me. And so we often talk about addiction is attachment trauma. And um, so I, I think that um, the more we do the type of work you guys do that helps somebody get out of that hypervigilant state, the more we do the trauma-focused work to help them discharge the trauma that is causing their body to be constricted even when they're not under perceived threat, the more we start um, reducing the physical pain issues. Um, wow. Could we talk a little more about the EMDR therapy you mentioned and mm -hmm. maybe how it's different from other approaches of psychotherapy? Sure. Um, so um, EMDR therapy has been around for 33 years. It is the most researched form of psychotherapy out there. Um, and, uh, it is an evidence-based treatment that has been, um, research has shown that is the most effective treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as symptoms. So um, I use it all the time for um, all sorts of things, obviously PTSD, but also just self-esteem issues, writer's block, anxiety, depression, insomnia. So EMDR, um, 
is memory reprocessing. But the, it, it actually stands for, the E is I, the M is movement. I movement, desensitization. So desensitization of a memory that is bringing up anxiety, shame, guilt, um, physical pain. And then the R is um, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Reprocessing is activating the brain's natural ability that we have to take information and adapt it and code it and store it in a way that it doesn't hurt us, but that it helps us and it helps us adapt and function. So um, what we are doing with EMDR therapy that is different than other types of psychotherapy or other types of, of trauma therapy is um, EMDR, we don't we know that simply talking about a traumatic experience over and over again does not desensitize it. It just re-traumatizes the person. To desensitize a traumatic experience, we first have to get the person in a relaxed body state so that they have this pause between the stimulus and the automatic response of fear, shame, guilt, or whatever's coming up. And so EMDR is we... You know, the client comes in and we talk about, hey, what are all the present day problems that you're experiencing? What are the changes you want to make in your life or your goals? And there is a history gathering process where I'm kind of playing detective and I'm, I'm gathering clues and identifying among all their lifetimes of, of adverse experiences and traumas, what are the specific memories that are pushing their present day symptoms. And many clients don't know what those memories are. And that's the beauty of EMDR. I can work with, I can work with something without the client either um, knowing about what it is oh, wow. or if they don't want to talk about the details of the memory because they're too uncomfortable talking about it, which is one of the reasons uh, it's, it's so cool. Um, so it's this process where once we've identified which memory we're going to work with. And typically I'm working with a series of memories over a course of a few weeks or a month, um, unless it's a rare incidence where a client is coming in for a single incident recent trauma. Um, it is a process where we activate the trauma that is stuck and frozen in the brain. And by activating it, there is a series of questions I ask the client that activates the emotions, the physical sensations, when they think about the memory now, what negative beliefs does it make them feel about themselves? So that's the meaning they made of the trauma. Like, I'm not safe. It's my fault. I'm not good enough. Um, what you notice in the body. And then it is a process of um, having the client, while they're not talking to you, mm -hmm. Focus on an object that is moving back and forth. So yeah. right now, because I'm doing everything online, it's on a computer screen, and it is a little green light that moves back and forth. What are we doing? We're replicating rapid eye movement sleep because what we know is during rapid eye movement sleep, that is how the body and brain takes the experiences of the day, sorts through it, and says, what does this person need to hold on to to keep them safe, which is why the brain holds on to trauma memories because the body said, we need to keep you safe. Or what can this person let go of? Um, so that's why just talking about it doesn't yeah. always discharge it because the brain has said, hold on to this. 
So what we're doing is the right left bilateral is naturally relaxing. It moves that person out of that fear state into a more relaxed state. So then we can then access the emotions and the body sensations and they can process it. So it is a series of, it's a 90 minute session and it's a series of sets where they are present day thinking about the memory, noticing what's coming up, engaged in the bilateral. Then they say, tell me a little bit, I say something. And over the course of that bilateral eye movement, um, the desensitization happens. So what happens is the, the brain starts connecting that stuck frozen memory up with other information in the body and the brain that they, it hasn't been able to connect up to. Yeah. Okay. Cause it was, and so at the end of the session, the D is the client can say, you know what, when I think about that memory now, it's not as upsetting. Mm -hmm. It's not as distressing. I don't feel that fear. I don't feel that shame. I don't feel that guilt. Oh, it feels farther away. I mean, often it's like, I can barely remember it. That's what we want. And the R is the meaning has changed because the meaning that was made at the time of the memory, particularly if it happened, you know, but when we were a child or an adolescent, the brain could make a memory that I'm bad. It's yeah. my fault. You know, something like that. Versus when the adult brain connects up to it in a relaxed state, the adult brain can go, you know what? I'm safe mm. now. They can't hurt me anymore. It wasn't my fault. I was just, you know, wrong place, wrong time, whatever it is. Or, you know, um, so, um, yeah. yeah. It, what are the, so one of the ways that it's different than other psychotherapies, and I'm not knocking other psychotherapies, one of the reasons I love the MDR is we can move something very quickly. Mm. You know, clients who said to me, I have been in therapy for decades. I have talked about this and yeah, I got something out of it, but I still have these flashbacks. I still have these nightmares. I still have this chronic anxiety. You can shift stuff with a couple sessions where clients will go, Oh my God, I feel like myself for the first time. I feel relaxed for the first time because it's, it's integrating the best of a lot of really cool therapies. Mm -hmm. It's, it's psychodynamic because it's looking at how do our past experiences influence as present day it's it's existential because it's the meaning that the client made. When you think about that heartbreak, when you think about that job loss, when you think about whatever the bad experience, what does it make you feel about yourself now that rationally you know may not be true, but it certainly feels true? It's it's cognitive, cognitive behavioral because we're saying what are the thoughts and feelings. Yeah. It's somatic therapy because I'm saying what do you notice in your body as mm -hmm. you process this trauma? Um, and it's brings in mindfulness because the beauty of EMDR is the client can't do it wrong. You're just noticing your brain is going to do the work. And one of the things that, um, you know, I love about EMDR is it has just really brought home to me that we have the ability to heal ourselves, that our bodies were designed to adapt. And all we need to do is get rid of the interference. It's what you guys do with the different movements you do to put a new life force into an area and, and change the muscles and mobilize a joint. Um, that's what we're doing. We're like, let's get our head out of the way and let the brain discharge this stuck frozen emotion and memory. And so if you think about what a nightmare is, 
A nightmare is simply your brain trying to do its job. It's trying to process right. that. Wow. Yeah. Um, and and if you think about when clients have panic, well, what is that? It's your body trying to process something. And unfortunately, what happens is we're living in a world where instead of people getting curious and going into the body and going, why, what is my body doing with this symptom? What do we do? Well, let me just get rid of the symptom. Let me medicate it away with, right. with food, with alcohol, yeah. with a pill. And what are we doing? We're interrupting the body's natural ability to bring it to resolution. Anyhow. I'm ready to run through a brick wall right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, this, this has been really Thank fascinating. You. I mean, I've learned so much, and I think everybody listening will learn so much. And, you know, just talking about finding your more, the podcast is called Made for More. Um, what, if there's one tip you could give people that they could add to their daily routine to help them kind of get unstuck, what would you recommend? Um, I am a big fan of, uh, I love the Headspace app for mindfulness meditation. I be, I love their little animated videos. Um, I love how they illustrate concepts and I think we all need to slow down a little. And if we're, if we're, if we're going to find mm -hmm. our more, if we're going to learn to live in a relaxed body state, we got to find 10 minutes to be quiet every day and just sit and know that you don't have to do anything. You don't have to solve anything. Just kind of sit and notice. Um, and so well, I think that's a start, good starting point for everybody. Well, this has been great, Kulpana. We really appreciate your time and the uh, just the breadth and depth of information that you've offered is, I think, is a really powerful thing for, for people who may not know how what they're dealing with or how to reconcile some of the things they're going through in life. And I think this is just, um, you know, that's an area that I think most of us should, should be seeking out. And uh, I think that you're going to help a lot of people through what you do. So we appreciate your time. We thank you for uh, your support. And um you know, we, we, we really like the relationship that, you know, PT and, and psychotherapy have. And um, I think that together we can really help a lot of people. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me and your interest in the topic. And I appreciate it. Welcome back, everybody. We just finished talking to Culpin Murthy. Um, hopefully this was a enlightening discussion about trauma and pain and just being able to know that there are options out there for you. And I think one of the most important things that Kulpana talked about is the body does want to heal itself. And as practitioners, our job is to help remove the obstacles or help people understand the interferences that are disallowing that from happening. So um, I guess the big takeaway from that is kind of get curious and, and look for people that are willing to help you kind of be able to figure those things out. So um, there are a few things that Copeland talked about in there that I think are important that um, we kind of illuminate from a, a physical therapy side of things. And so Mary Kathleen has some questions for us. Yeah. Yeah. So one of, one of the things that surprised me when she talked about trauma was like, it doesn't have to be a big event for it to be a traumatic event in your life. Like it's not like you had to be at war or you had to suffer 
an emotional or physical abusive relationship, um, there's all different types of trauma. So I'm wondering, are there different types of pain and how do we even define pain? Right. Well, you know, I think what, what we need to come to light on and, and understand is that, you know, as Coppola said, our brain does a great job of protecting us from threats, right? So what we need to understand is that pain is actually processed in our brain and not in the periphery. So mm-hmm. we think like if we burn ourselves, right, and we have a burn, that that is the problem, right? And it, But the burn might be something very small. Or maybe you you have a paper cut, right? The paper yeah. cut's really small, but the brain is saying, oh my gosh, that's the worst pain I've had. <laughs> and if that's the first time you had a paper cut, you think that's the worst pain there ever is. But then you look at it, you're like, oh, it barely cut my skin. So it's how, you know, we perceive, we all have a, th- a threshold of pain and we all perceive pain differently, mm-hmm. but it truly is, you know, I like to think of it. They say that we have this medicine cabinet in our brain where we have all the tools to handle pain, but it's how we access those tools. And yeah. sometimes we, like she said, protect ourselves from getting access to that medicine cabinet that lets us handle pain or handle what's going on in our bodies. And you know, if you think about the example, and I know I've heard Jake talk about this, like, say you're, um, you, uh, you have a nail gun, right? And the nail goes through your foot. And you see the nail on your, you know, going through your foot. And you're like, Oh, my gosh, I got to get to the doctor, because this is like, terrible. And then they go and they do an x ray. And they're like, well, actually, that nail just went between your toes and hit some soft tissue. If we just remove the nail, you're going to be fine. But to you, you look at that nail and think, oh my gosh, it's terrible. Like something terrible must have happened because it's the, it's the alarm bells and the perceived threat that is causing the problem. Maybe not the actual injury that causes the problem. And we see this so much when people have surgery, they might have back surgery or knee surgery and they go and fix the problem. But at the end of the day, they still have pain because We never fix the actual pain problem or what's going on in the brain. Those alarm bells that our body perceives to be the threat in the first place. We just fixed the mechanical problem that we thought was causing the pain in the first place. Right. So they never even like access those tools that you were talking about that were in their brain, which is, you know, Jake mentioned earlier in the podcast when we were talking to Kulpana that the U.S. makes up, you said, 98 percent of all opioid consumption. So that seems like it's another way that people are avoiding accessing those tools that Lauren talked about is opioids. Completely. Uh, And I mean, I think there's a few things that are important to um, understand about like our opioid crisis right now is that, um, yeah, we are, we are far and away the largest consumer of all opioids worldwide. Um, and you know, there, there's a lot of sociological things we have to understand about that. But if we're just talking about like the physiologic response to that, um, the problem with opioids is that opioids can address a certain type of pain but they don't address all types of pain. For example, an opioid will not be effective against nerve pain. And oftentimes people will be prescribed an opioid for nerve pain and it doesn't actually influence the neurogenic symptom. And so the, um, the problem is that people will then, the dosage will increase is because people yeah. don't understand that there are multiple types of pain. We're talking about pain. We have different definitions for what pain are 
uh, or, or the different types of pain. So we have a, a classic type of pain is what's called a nociceptive pain. Nociception is basically the, the, the example that Lauren gave, a nail going through the skin. That's pure nociception. Something from the periphery getting in, in or something from our environment getting into the body. Then you can have a neurogenic pain, which is pain produced in a nerve. Um, then you can also have um, somatic pain or affective pain, pain from an, an emotional standpoint. And then you can also have like your, your more complex types of pain, which are centrally evoked pain, which is pain that's actually uh, generated because of the, the way that the brain is actually not um, synthesizing information properly. And so there's tons of different types of pain. And so the problem is, is we, we have been throwing opioids at the issue for a long time, and we have created uh, a lot of availability of those things, and then uh, a lot of uh, poor prescription um, of that. The thing about opioids that we have to understand is that opioids do not remove the painful stimuli. They just mask it. Mm -hmm. And so what opioids end up doing over time is actually causing more pain. Yeah. We have an enormous amount of data that suggests that opioids actually sensitize us more to symptoms. So, right. you know, for example, something that may not have caused pain before, because we've been on an opioid, our nervous system is actually more sensitive. So now that thing will actually cause more pain, which is Gosh. why people get stuck in these painful loops. Yeah. So this is something that's called secondary hyperalgesia, which is actually induced by an opioid. And so we're actually throwing fuel on the fire of pain Golly, by yeah. prescribing opioids. Um, and so that evidence is, is, is uh, a lot more abundant and you'll see, you're seeing a lot of people now not doing those things and it's being recognized by the CDC as something to not do for people. But the problem is that now it's out there and people, we have a whole society of people that are hooked. You know, we had, more deaths from opioids. It is the number one cause of preventable death in the United States for individuals under the age of 55. Holy cow. 45% of all heroin users get started on an opioid prescription. And right. this is not coming from individuals who are drug seekers. Mm -hmm. yeah. This is coming from, you know, your, your, your father, your, your uncle, your, your, your grandmother, even who gets prescribed an opioid. And here's what happens. They get prescribed an opioid. The opioid doesn't help their symptoms. Now they're hooked on the opioid. Now they're in more pain because the opioid actually sensitized them more. They go back to the doctor to get more and more and more. The doctor keeps prescribing them. But at a certain point, the doctor says, well, these aren't working anymore. You're, you're a drug seeker or, you know, now you're hooked and we have to remove you from them. And yeah. now they're addicted. And so then they're going to seek out alternative ways to yeah. get those medications mm -hmm. off the street. And when you can't find them off the street, they then you know, turn to harder drugs and things yeah. like this. And this is the pattern that happens to just regular everyday people. It's not that these are bad yeah. people. It's that the, the way the system was structured in the beginning, put this person in a position of failure. And yeah. so it's really important. We understand this. It's really important that healthcare providers um, make this uh, known to people and that people are aware of the, the dangers of these things. Wow. Yeah. That is crazy. crazy. I didn't know some of that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, so kind of going back to like the tools that Lauren mentioned that we have that can help us sort of eliminate our pain. Um, do you guys ever work? We talked about EMDR and the eye movement. Do you guys ever do anything like that with your patients who to help them overcome their physical pain? Yeah. You know, I think that um, 
we have to think of it in a few ways, like, you know, not even in our practice, but say like exercising, right? Getting out and exercising is a form of EMDR because we are using some rapid eye movement to see if we're a runner, right? You're processing things around you. So it doesn't even have to be that it's a specific treatment, but it can be that you're using that those eye movements to down, right? You're active, but you're down regulating and processing emotions. And a lot of people use running as a meditation because it helps them process those things. Um, But, you know, we use it like another thing, you know, we see is people with vertigo, right? So vestibular problems, they wake up, they have what's called um, BPPV, which is a, a positional vertigo, but it could also have a visual component to it. And so when you have that vertigo, your nervous system, which is in your inner ear, is overstimulated because of, of this, what's happening in the inner ear. So we, again, have to get the, the brain to process these new stimulation or stimuli in that's in our um, balance center, our, for, which is causing the vertigo, to understand what's happening and reprocess those things so we can get rid of the vertigo. So yeah. using eye movements for that is a key component um, for something as simple as that, but also in our own physical therapy, you know, it's when we look at movement, we use, you know, our sensation, you know, touching things, yep. right? We use our eyes and then we use what's called proprioception, which is our awareness of where our bodies are in space through movement. So we have to use all of those senses and the visual component is huge for that. Yeah. Wow. I think it's kind of worth understanding that you know, the, the eyes can be one of the most direct routes to the brain. Um, yeah. And we're seeing this now kind of play out a lot more in like concussion therapy in which, you know, for, for old concussion protocols, they used to say, well, you know, go sit in a dark room and, you know, keep your head down, you know, all of that stuff. And we know that that actually makes things worse because what happened to the brain is trauma. The the example we use for concussion protocol is, you know, you've got a filing cabinet where everything in the brain is kind of neatly stored. When you get a concussive blow to the brain, that's trauma to the brain. It's like the filing cabinet was tipped over and all those papers are kind of scrambled everywhere. And so the reason our brain hurts is because we are, we can't access those files as readily. And so we don't know how to kind of um, pick out the things that we need from, you know, from that filing cabinet. And so what we can do through the eyes is actually reorganize that filing cabinet to kind of put everything back in its place. Um, and so by keeping people in the dark, you're not actually overcoming that. You're actually prolonging that therapy form. So most concussive protocols include a lot of eye movement um, mm-hmm. as windows into the brain. The other thing is that, and, and one of the reasons why is that our eyes actually use uh, we have these these neurons in our brain that are called mirror neurons. And mirror neurons are are why we are empathetic. So because, you know, if I see somebody fall down or I see somebody get hurt, the reason I'm able to actually empathize with that person and experience what they experience secondhand is because my my eyes see it it goes to these mirror neurons and the mirror neurons tell my brain what that experience would be like for me. Mm-hmm. And so when we have those mirror neurons, we can actually experience and the brain will actually make sense of what we're visualizing um, to actually make us more empathetic or to help us actually say, Ooh, that's something I don't want to do either. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we see this, um, 
and yeah, play out in, in relationships and, you know, you know, things like that. But we also use um, mirror neurons to, to actually trick our brain sometimes to help even ourselves. So for example, um, a great example is phantom limb pain. If somebody has phantom yeah. limb pain, um, it's, you know, they have had an arm or a leg or something like that amputated, but they will still experience pain within the segment where the arm or the leg used to be. Yeah. And this is because of a neural signature, because even though we've, we've taken that area, that physical portion of the body away, the brain still had neurons dedicated to that body part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there is a portion within our brain that was dedicated there that now is basically empty space because it's not associated with a physical body part. So it doesn't know what to do with now all of the, the information there. So you'll, you'll actually get um, adjacent neurons or neighboring neurons invade that area. And so a classic case is somebody who got phantom limb pain, got their arm chopped off. Um, and they could still feel pain in their arm. But when researchers took a water droplet and dropped it on their face, they could feel it in their arm. It's because the, the portion of the brain that is dedicated to the arm is right next to the portion of the brain that's dedicated to the face. And so these, these neurons will kind of invade those areas. So we can use the eyes. And so the, the point behind saying that is the way that we actually reorganize the brain to rid ourselves of the phantom limb pain is we actually put, um, we actually look in a mirror and we hide, let's say our right arm was amputated. Mm-hmm. We hide our right arm and we get in a mirror and we look in the mirror and we move our left arm. Well, because it's a mirror image, it actually looks like the right arm is moving. Yeah. And so we're actually in our brain perceiving that our right arm is moving and we can actually see the arm moving. And so it actually reorganizes those neurons to actually feel okay about the missing limb now. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's so all cool. that to say is that the eyes can be a really powerful tool to access um, healing within the brain. Yeah. It almost yeah. sounds like science fiction, but like, <laughs> right? I mean, I know there's proof behind it, but when you just hear it, you're like, put a mirror there and it looks like your right arm and it's going right. to work. It's crazy it, that it, it does, does work. It does sound dumb. Yeah. There was a research paper that came out last year uh, by a guy who works with people who have frozen shoulder and a frozen shoulder is, is truly what's called an adhesive capsulitis where literally the joint is stiffened, physiologically stiffened. But when they did mirror image therapy, they didn't move the affected limb at all. They only moved the non-affected side and you gained random range of motion in the affected side without even ever moving it. That's awesome. Yeah, that's it's awesome. cool. It's yeah. really, really cool. So anyway, all of that to say is that, you know, the power, I guess maybe in kind of summary, this is all talking about the power of the brain, right? Mm-hmm. We yeah. are a nervous system with a body. The body experiences pain, um, but you know ultimately we've got to get to the brain level to start actually experiencing healing, whether that be physically, emotionally, uh, relationally. That getting to the brain is is where that happens, and you know that can take place in physical therapy. That can take place in psychotherapy. Oftentimes, it's a blend of both. Yeah. Well, take care yeah. of your eyes, everybody. Right. And uh... eat your carrots. Yep. Eat your carrots, get some sleep. So you get some Mm -hmm. rapid eye movement too. (laughs) There you go. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for tuning in and we will see you next time.